All right, we go live. Koyach, Jake. Very nice. All right, peoples, we're ready to learn some Torah over here? What do you say, yeah? All right. I do believe we are live. And you're all here. Fantastic. Um, all right, let's hit the recording. We have a backup. And we have the left online. Hello, Alat. Okay, Rabbi Say, here's the good news. In this class, teaching people's history. We are going to be concluding the first chapter of this tractate. This Pedic is called Megillah Nikras. The Megillah is read. The first half of it is about when the Megillah is read, how the Megillah is read, by whom, and other things like that. And the second half of this chapter is all about the Megillah itself. It's about the sages' expositions on the words of the Megillah. Now, there's Medrashim, other similar genre of teachings on the Megillah that are not included in the Gemara, but many of the major, major issues that we have about the story of Purim will be found in one way, shape, or form in the pages of this chapter of Gemara. Of course, because this is Gemara, there's going to be tangents. Like life itself, it meanders. Just as people's conversations are not box-like and exquisitely structured, the beauty of life, the Gemara is a living, breathing organism. That, anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the way the Gemara functions. Today's lesson is not going to be specifically about the Megillah at all. We're going to go back to the very beginning. No, 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 you open the book. We're definitely going to be reading for that book. But we're going to be looking at the deep history of the Jewish people. We're going to talk about Father Jacob, the patriarch Yaakov Avinu, and we're going to talk about his timeline, his historic timeline. He leaves home, comes back to the land of Israel, and then things happen with the next generation. And Joseph is away from home as Jacob was away from home. And there seems to be a corollary between the two, and that, of course, is the kind of the focus of our discussion. Why are we talking about uh, Yaakov and Yosef? Let's have to do the Megillah. So in the last episode, we talked about the virtue of Torah study and how the study of Torah is the greatest human accomplishment. That's like shatters all glass ceilings, the greatest thing we can do. So now the Gemara is going to say we have another narrative. Long before the story was told in the Megillah of Mordechai's popularity, which was kind of widespread, but not absolute, some very, very important members of the Jewish people did not accept Mordechai's leadership, at least not in, in, the, in the fullest sense. They did not embrace his, his, his reality as the paradigm of inspired, uplifted Torah leadership. 
after. After the story of Haman, where Mordechai now is a synergy of a political leader, he's the prime minister, basically, viceroy, he has Haman's position. But he's still a very important Jewish leader. He's still a Rebbe for the Jewish people. And that some of the Sanhedrin, not all the Sanhedrin, and it's not the Halacha, but some of the Sanhedrin said, nah, what's that? He's not for us, Mordechai. Why? Because he's not studying Torah to the full intensity that Mordechai could and they believe should. And it's even reasonable to say that they didn't have a, a bone to pick with Mordechai. They didn't say, you know, Mordechai, you're doing a bad thing. You're not learning Torah. They said, Mordechai has to do what Mordechai has to do. That's the job Hashem gave him. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for inspiration. We're looking to model a different kind of behavior and leadership. And if this is who Mordechai is, that's fine. It's what Hashem chose for Mordechai. It's not the person that we are going to try and embody. That's, that's really kind of the, the gist of the lesson that's learned from the last pasuk, the last verse in Megillat Esther that describes Mordechai's post-Purim leadership. And if you want to sum it up, we will simply say, G'day Torah. Torah is great. Now from the story of Mordechai's post-Purim leadership, we go into post-Purim leadership in general. Who is the next great leader of the Jewish people? Ezra. Ezra leads the people back to the land of Israel. Ezra is the one who ensures and oversees the rebuilding of the second base of Migdash and the reestablishment of the Jewish commonwealth. And because that's the case, it must be that uh, Ezra teaches us how important the building of the base of Migdash is. Said, Not really. In fact, from Ezra, we learn that studying Torah is even more important than the building of the Beit HaMikdash. Imagine that. The Beit HaMikdash, this is the archetypal paradigm of Hashem's presence amongst us. And when the Beit HaMikdash is as it should be, God dwells amongst every one of us. And yet, Ezra said, I'm not prepared to go yet. I'm still studying Torah with my teacher, the prophet Baruch ben Neria. And only after Baruch ben Neria passes, only then does Ezra agree to abandon Babylon and head home to Israel and subsequently build the base of Megdash. Why? Because Torah study reigns supreme. And as we talked about at the end of the previous episode, so could not Ezra study Torah in the land of Israel? I didn't say this in a previous episode, but the truth is Torah study in the land of Israel has a virtue vis-a-vis Torah study outside of Israel. That's all fine. But Ezra wouldn't have his Rebbe, his teacher. And there's a whole discussion as to why Baruch Benaria himself wouldn't have made Aliyah and gone back to Israel. For simplicity's sake, let's just say he couldn't. And, Mart, and, and Ezra said, if he can't, I'm going to remain and continue to study Torah from the mouth of this incomparable Torah sage until there's no longer an option. And then, when Baruch Benaria passes, indeed, Ezra goes to Eretz Yisrael and rebuilds the Beis HaMikdash. And from this, the Gemara said, we can see that Gedoyla Talmud Torah, not just quantitative Talmud Torah, but the quality of Talmud Torah is greater even than Binyan Beis HaMikdash. Because for a higher notch in the quality of Torah, Ezra was prepared to delay the building of the Beis HaMikdash. It's really quite something. How many people do you know today, if you would give them an opportunity to participate 
actively participate in building the Beis HaMikdash, how many people do you think would say, yeah, I'm kind of busy. Netflix is on tonight. I'm, I'm, no. I can't build a base of Megdash. Who would say that? No, it's kind of self-centered, too, for a, for a leader of the Jewish people to... Ah, oh, it sounds self-centered. No, Ezra's Torah wasn't self-centered. It wasn't about his own intellectual entertainment or gymnastics. This is about the greatest thing a Jew can do. I'm just saying, if you would come to somebody today, anybody, an assimilated Jew who just knows something, you know, a little about the base of Megdash. You, you can build the base of Megdash. You want, you want me to sign you up? Because Mashiach's coming in three hours. And whoever gets signed up now, the first 5,000 people that sign up, they're going to get to put bricks on. But you have to come show them for a training session now, tonight, now. How many people do you think would say no? I don't think anybody I know would say no. And yet, none of them came to learn Torah tonight. Why didn't they come to learn Torah tonight? Netflix is on. So the Gemara is telling us that learning Torah is greater than building the base on Mikdash. Wow. That's big. And now the Gemara is going to tell us that the study of Torah trumps the honor one is obligated to give your parents. That's, that's a pretty big statement because, you know, honoring your parents are big mitzvah. It's one of the Aseret Hadibrots, one of the ten statements that God makes to the Jewish people at the time of Master's Revelation at Sinai. And you know that the, the, the tablets have five mitzvahs on one tablet and five mitzvahs or five statements, mitzvah statements are on the other tablet. And the first five are Bein Adam la Makom, between us and God. And the second govern Bein Adam la Chaviro, how we treat others. Things like jealousy and stealing, that's how we treat others. And very interestingly, the mitzvah of honoring our parents, Kabe Dasavicha Vesimecha, is not found in the second set of tablets. It's found in the first tablet. So that means honoring parents is actually an extension of honoring Hashem Himself. It's big. It's one of the only mitzvahs in the Torah for which we are promised lengthy days actual terrestrial lifetime. And yet, the study of Torah is greater. How do you know that? That's a very, very bold statement to make. Well, the Gemara is about to prove it. Buckle your seatbelts, and let's go on this journey together. But now you understand why it is that in, in Mesechet Megillah, and in the collection of teachings on the Megillah, we're talking not about the story of Purim, but the story of the founding of the Jewish people, of Father Jacob, Yaakov, who leaves Be'er Sheva, home in Israel, heads off to a delightful place named Choron. Well, maybe it wasn't so delightful. Uh, like, uh, it's like the equivalent of a sin city of antiquity. It's not a nice place. It's a place that the name Choron means fury because it provoked the fury of God due to the immoral kind of behavior and conduct that people engaged in. And that's where Yaakov Avinu finds, he finds his, his wife, wives, and builds a family, and comes home to Eretz Yisrael. And of course, Mother Rachel gives birth to the 13th child, the 12th Shevet in Eretz Yisrael. Only Binyamin is born in Eretz Yisrael. So we'll talk about this journey. 
Bottom of the Gemara and Dafte Zayin Amud Beis 16 side B, but it's Mamash the last line. It's like at the very very end. Shalom to our online viewers. If you happen to have a Gemara handy, you may want to open it to the very end of 16 B of Mesechet Megillah, or maybe you could even Google it online and bring it up on the screen. At any rate, all of you here have a Gemara in front of you. And we are literally in the last line. Omar Rav Yitzchak. Rav Yitzchak Bar Shmuel, pardon me, Omar Rav Yitzchak Bar Shmuel. Rabbe said that he heard from Rav Yitzchak Bar Shmuel, Bar Marta, the son of Marta, Gedoilo Talmud Torah, Yoter Mikibud Av The study of Torah is greater than, more so even than the mitzvah of honoring father and mother. Wow. How would you prove that? The Gemara says, I'll tell you how I prove it. Shakol Otan Shanim. All of those years. Shahoya Yaakov Avinu. Bibet Aver, all those years that Yaakov was in the house of Aver. What's the house of Aver? Anybody know? House of Aver? Noach has an eldest son whose name is Shem. He's a very righteous person. And Shem has a son whose name is Aver. And what did Shem do for a living? He was a priest to God. Why is he not one of our great patriarchs? I mean, he is an ancestor because Avram Avinu is a descendant of shame. But Avram is Avram Avinu. He's the big founder of Judaism. How come, how come um, shame isn't a big founder of Judaism? It's a good question, no? I mean, after all, didn't Avram Avinu learn Torah from shame? And Yitzchak Avinu learned Torah from Hashem. And Yaakov definitely spent time in the yeshiva. He left his father's yeshiva and he went to the yeshiva of Hashem. It wasn't Shem's yeshiva anymore because Shem was no longer alive. It was Aver's yeshiva. Shem had passed on at that point and it was Aver's yeshiva. How come Shem and Aver are not uh, the first two patriarchs? How many people did Shem and Aver influence? How many people did they influence? They had a yeshiva. How many cadets graduated? Some of the biggies. Uh, we know one or two. Avram, Yaakov, maybe Yitzchak. So did, did, they, did they make a change in the world in which they lived? Did they influence the world in which they lived? The answer is not really. They produced a disciple who influenced the world. But did they influence the world? No. They could care less about the world around them. They were focused on their own spiritual pursuit. You want to learn Torah? <laughs> no problem. You're welcome to join us. There's even fresh brewed coffee. And indeed, Yaakov Avinu didn't go to sleep. He drank coffee for 14 years. Imagine that. He's the world's greatest coffee drinker. I mean, he went to sleep. You have to doze off. He didn't go to sleep sleep. So we have this business of the first Rashi Yeshiva 
big Rashi yeshivas, a big yeshiva, and they're not our patriarchs. How many people did Avram Avinu influence? We don't even know the numbers. Huge numbers. Many, many people. And Avram produces Yitzchak. And we don't know so much about Yitzchak's influence, but he had an influence. And Yaakov goes on to build a family. And of course, Yosef, he changes the course of world history. In some ways, unwittingly. So they're not our patriarchs. But they taught our patriarchs. It's interesting. And Yaakov Avinu spent time in Beit Ever. And lo ne'enash, he was not punished for spending time in yeshiva. Let me say that again. He wasn't punished for spending time in yeshiva. Why would you punish him for spending time in yeshiva? That sounds crazy. I mean, I've been hammering you to go to yeshiva. Like, you see, I don't want to get punished. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work for you, Dimitri. Okay. <laughs> So the, the understanding is he wasn't punished for abandoning his father and mother because he left an old blind father and he left his mother all alone and she was going to take care of his father and didn't have much nachas from their other son. His name was Esau, Esau and he had the haunted house of monsters over there, Amalek and Alifaz and every other, but he also was terrible stuff. There wasn't Yiddish and Nachas for them. And Yaakov was AWOL for a very long time. So, so that wasn't really okay. True. But 14 of those years, he doesn't pay a price for. Why? Why? Because he was in Yeshiva. So the mitzvah of honoring parents is very important. And he's going to pay a price. But, despite the fact that the mitzvah is very important, he's going to pay a price. If the time was spent in yeshiva studying Torah, that's okay. That's okay. That's what the Gemara says. Now, how do you know that? How do you know that the time that Yaakov spent in the, yeshiva, the house of Aver, which is a euphemism for the yeshiva of Shem and Aver, lo nanash. The Gemara says, aha, you want to know how? I can prove it to you. This Gemara is so exciting, it's a page turner. We're now going to go to Daf Yud Zayin, Omud Aleph, page 17. Side A, some very wide, wide lines of Gemara because there's no commentary from the Tosfos. And this is very, very mathematical. It's calculations of the timeline of Yaakov's journeys. And it was going to prove to us, when we finish the whole calculation, that Yaakov Avinu indeed was not punished for those 14 years, but he paid a price for the other. So what's the obvious question you should ask me? You're telling me that Yaakov Avinu wasn't punished. Yeah, okay, wasn't punished. Like, why should he be punished? Wasn't he sent by his parents to go and do this? That's a reasonable question. It's so reasonable that the Maharsha himself asks the question. The Maharsha asks even another question. He says, let's say you could prove that these 14 years didn't count. Let's say you could prove that. How does it prove that the study of Torah is greater than honoring parents? 
it should be able to prove that the study of Torah is equal to honoring parents. Equal, not greater. How do you know it's greater? So the Marsha says, well, I'll tell you a little secret. Really, we know that it's greater, not equal, because we have a Mishnah in the beginning of Mesechet Peah. It's a famous Mishnah. If you say morning blessings, we say this every single day. We talk about Elud Varim, Sha'adam Echol Pereseim Be'elom Hazeh, Ba'keren Kayemes Le'elom These are things, special mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that you get to enjoy benefits in this world, but the principle remains untouched for eternity. It's like an investment. The principle is guaranteed that you can live off the annuities. And then the Mishnah says, I mean, the important mitzvahs, mitzvahs like honoring your parents. And then the Mishnah comes along and says, V'talmud Torah, keneged kulam. We say this every morning. And the study of Torah equals them all. So, so that's how we know it's greater. We know it's greater, not from Mordechai. Well, Mordechai has nothing to do with honoring parents. Not from Ezra. Ezra is about the base of Megdash. But we know from the story of Yaakov, not really, not really, says the Marsha. We know that from the Mishnah, because the Mishnah says, the Talmud Torah connected Kulam. So then the question is, if we know it from the Mishnah, then why are we talking about Yaakov Avinu? Why are we even discussing this whole thing? From Yaakov, we can only see that it's equal. One, so to speak, cancels or replaces the other. This is a very good question. And the Marsha doesn't really answer it. But the Beis HaLevi answers it in a phenomenal way. The Beis HaLevi, he says, honoring your father, fantastic, huge mitzvah. Honoring your mother, fantastic, huge mitzvah. Either one of those is probably equal to the study of Torah. How about honoring your father and your mother? That's two mitzvahs, not one. If you're privileged to have a father and a mother, honoring both is two mitzvahs. And here, Yaakov is doing one mitzvah, and that's the mitzvah of studying Torah. So if the mitzvah of studying Torah is greater than honoring your father and your mother, then it's telling us that the mitzvah of Torah, Talmud Torah, is not just connected kulam for mother or father, or father or mother, but even when you have an opportunity to honor both father and mother, and Yaakov had both a father and a mother who were alive, who, who benefited from his presence. And yet, Yaakov said, I have to go study Torah. So from this, the Beis HaLevi, this would answer the Marshal's question. Yes, we know it's greater from the Mishnah and Mesechet Peah, but taking it a little further, from Yaakov Avinu, we could see, even when you have both father and mother available to honor and to, and to, uh, to, and to respect and to dignify as the Torah ordains us to. Now the Marshal asks another question. Mashal says, what, what do you mean he wasn't punished? Who sent Yaakov away to begin with? Who told him? His mother. And then you know what else his mother got, got, got to his, his father to do? So it was the power, the, the power of a Yiddish wife's suggestion. It's called the power of suggestion. What did she get Yitzchak to do? She got Yitzchak to send him away too. So Yaakov's mother sends him away, 
And Yaakov's father sends him away. But Yitzchak doesn't know he's sending him away because his wife told him to, because she gets him to. You know, like there's the famous saying of our sages, Ishak Sheda, the most suitable, most well-suited wife, which literally translates as she does her husband's bidding. And the deeper translation is, she makes, she manufactures the desire of her husband. He just doesn't know. She's so clever about it that she doesn't even realize. Yeah, we need to plug it in. Um, it's going to die at some point. That wouldn't be good. A dead computer won't help us, you know, like a dead horse. You ever try to ride a dead horse? I want to try it. I'm just kidding. So Yitzchak Avinu tells Yaakov, you know what? I had a brilliant idea. You should go off to Lavan, Rivka's family. You have to go get a wife. Okay, so his father sends him and his mother sends him. So what do you mean he wasn't nanish, wasn't punished? Why should he be punished? He just did what they wanted. So the Marsha brings a very interesting answer. He brings an answer in the name of the Imri Noam, who brings this in the name of the famous Tosafist Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, Rabbi Yechiel Mi Paris. And he says, at the end of those 14 years, Esav was kind of cooling his heels already. It was already reasonable to come home. And so Yaakov was sent away because Esav was planning to kill Yaakov. And Rivka said, I don't want to sit shiv for two children in one day. So why don't you just clear out of town? But 14 years later, was about as good as it's going to get. Anyway, when Yaakov came home many years later, 30 years later, didn't help anyway. So after 14 years, he should try to come home. But he didn't try to come home. So yes, Yaakov meant to do things. And other, the, some of the other Mepharshim say, at the end of the day, Yaakov was stuck in Yolovan's house. Why? Because he said, uh, what, what are you going to pay? He said, well, I'll, I'll work for you for seven years. Who asked him to say that? His father said, mother said, go get married and come home. You need to stay there for a while. You stayed already in Shane Weber's yeshiva for 14 years. Get married and come home. Instead, he got stuck there for seven years. And then because he was dealing with a lovan, he ends up marrying the wrong woman. I mean, the right woman, but not the woman he thought he was marrying. And because he made a promise to Rachel, he has no choice. He has to marry Rachel. He's halachically duty-bound because he has to keep his word. And he ends up working another seven years. And then lovan says, he says, I'm out of here. Lovan says, not so fast. Let's, let's negotiate. Don't you want to make a few dollars before you go home? Yaakov says, well, yeah, it'll be nice. And it ends up another six years of work. There you get, before you know it, 21 years go by. So, so therefore, you can't say Yaakov was exactly fulfilling the shlichut, the mission that his parents gave him. His parents gave him a very specific, defined mission, and it wasn't quite like that. I have a question. Now, if he wasn't always studying Torah when uh, he left his parents, for the first 14 years, he was only studying Torah. That's all he was doing. Shepherding is much later. For the first 14 years, only Torah study. So much so, he didn't even go to sleep. We know this because when he's at Mount Moriah, it says he laid his head down. And the way the Chumash, the scripture words it, we say tonight he lay down to sleep. But he hadn't laid down to sleep per se in 14 years. Meaning he was in the study hall, always studying. Fell asleep for a few hours, but he, was, he didn't even go to bed. So that's pretty intense. He learned a lot of things in those 14 years. 
he became very, very wise. And even when he was a shepherd, he was saying shahamalot and having a spiritual experience, and he was studying, but he was also being a shepherd. He was not on the same level. He does come back to his parents. Sure he does. Yaakov? We're going to assume here. We're going to assume here. Now, it still seems a little bit odd. It still seems a little odd. So there's a very, very interesting statement which is made by the Chida that I want to share with you because it sheds light on this whole thing. This is found in the Chida's commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, which is called Shiure Bracha on his comments on the 240th chapter of the section of Shulchan Aruch called Yoridea, the Chidah in Simon Tess says like this. He talks about the honor that one is duty-bound to afford parents. He says, I would like to introduce you to something that is stated by the 10th century work called the Sefer Hasidim. In the Sefer Hasidim, it says, Afagaf, the Av Shemochel, Kvedemochel, even if a father says, don't, don't honor me, don't be silly, it's fine. I don't, I don't need you to honor me. And you're, you're exempt. The father said, don't honor me, he said, don't honor me. But the son says, all right. So he's, he's not, he's exempt, but Chayev Bedini Shemayim. In heaven, there's still a reckoning. In an earthly sense, there's no issue. So the Chidah says, based on that statement, <laughs> We see that Yankov Avinu was punished. Why was he punished? He's punished. <laughs> For 22 years, he did not fulfill the mitzvah of honoring his parents, 20 years by Lavan, and then two years returning home. Which we're going to learn about soon. And the question is, Did Yitzchak Avinu not forgive his honor? Did he not send his son Yaakov away? Yes, Yitzchak did forgive him. He said, don't worry, my son. It's fine, Yaakov. But in heaven, there was still a price to pay. Now, I think we have to point out that the, 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 the sins of Yaakov are not the sins of you and me. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu struck a rock. Why did he strike a rock? Because, because he, wanted, he wanted the Jewish people to look good. He's been talking to them for 40 years. They never listened to him. They're rambunctious and rebellious. And they fight with him. It's very frustrating. And God says, just go talk to the rock. And of course, Hashem wants to show Moshe that even a rock will listen. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I've got to defend the Jewish people's honor. I can't do this. And he tries and doesn't work right away, and he makes an executive decision to strike the rock. And Hashem says, it's a wonderful calculation, but it's not what I told you to do. Maybe if you and I would strike the rock, we would get mafter, that Shabbos. Maybe they'd give us a big honor a big reward for caring more about the honor and dignity of Am Yisrael. But on Moshe Rabbeinu's level, he still has to follow exactly what Hashem tells him to do. And like the famous metaphor that if you have a cheap gemstone, you know, one of these uh, two or $3,000 diamonds, if the color is a little off, if it's in, it has a few imperfections, how much does it plunge in value? 
doesn't plunge. Goes down. So it's instead of paying $2,800, you know, you, you take this stone for $2,200. What if it's one of those rare gemstones? Mm -hmm. I have to be careful. I have a gemologist sitting right here. One of the rare gemstones. Do you, you, you ever sell like one of those $100,000 gemstones? Have you heard about it? You'd love to, huh? I mean, like these big celebrities or people who don't know what money means, like they spent, right? The slightest imperfection makes a difference of tens of thousands of dollars. Am I right? So Moshe Rabbeinu is this exquisite, perfect diamond. So the slightest imperfection. Yaakov Avinu is kind of the same thing. Yaakov Avinu, patriarch of the Jewish people, so perfect, so devoted, so balanced, so, so focused, the smallest thing. He has to pay a price for it. Now, another very, very interesting approach to this problem could be found in the teachings of the Ion Yaakov. The Ion Yaakov says that we know that the mitzvah of honoring parents, we say this in a Mishnah every day, is from the things, you will see something happen in this world. In this world. Most mitzvahs doesn't translate into any kind of wealth or health necessarily. But certain mitzvahs do. And honoring parents to one of those mitzvahs. Now, you're going to say, hey, here's a guy, and he only lived for 70 years, and he has such kibbutz of aim, why didn't he live for 90 years with somebody else? And what you don't know is that he was only supposed to live for 48 years. Why is he only supposed to live that? Well, that's what God gave him. So we don't know really what longevity means. Longevity means, ya'arichon, your days are lengthened. Every one of us is given exactly enough time to accomplish the mission that Hashem gives us. Exactly, and we're not given one extra nanosecond. And Hashem expects us to accomplish exactly what we're supposed to accomplish. So what happens if you uh, kill a day? Ah, kill, kill, kill a week. Yeah, kill a week. Kill a week. For a week of other weeks. <laughs> yeah, this week you're never going to have again. Because the time Hashem gave you, there was a lot of you to do all the things you're supposed to do. If you didn't do those things, if you missed this time, how are you going to make that up? That becomes a problem. It represents, yeah, most of us. That's, that's why we have something wonderful called tshuva. But like, yeah. You know, my grandmother, Allah HaShalom, told me that they were on a, a kolchoz. They were on this uh, farm. The communists put them on a farm. It's like a kibbutz, but it's a, it was a lot harsher. And you had to work on Saturday. And if you didn't work on Saturday, they didn't give you food. So she was a girl. She was a little girl, like nine, ten. And she had a new best friend called Starvation. She, she had no food. She would go to sleep with a with hungry, hungry, hungry stomach. Because her father wouldn't work on Shabbos. And then her older brothers figured out that if they get off the kolchoz, that they could do government work. I, I think they were putting these little pieces of um, some kind of jewelry, maybe costume jewelry. They were gluing little things, something like that. So, so I remember the story. So, so they, they found you can get, you get all the pieces and they let you do the work at home. So to let you do the work at home, you can make your own schedule. And the whole family used to work, literally, morning to night, to try to accomplish in six days what you're supposed to accomplish in seven days. So they should be able to keep Shabbos. And they didn't, they, they, they didn't have a free second because you have to cram seven days of work into six. It's that kind of thing. Now, it doesn't mean you should drive yourself insane with worry and anxiety about wasting, uh, wait, not wasting time, but it means you have to be focused. 
Wasting time is not an option for a yid. What do you mean? Hashem gives you time, <laughs> gives you years. Make it happen. Can you get an extension? Can you get some extra years? If you honor your parents, maybe yeah. So the Ion Yaakov says, you know, that Yaakov Avinu could have had some kind of benefit. Could have had some kind of benefit. Somehow it didn't seem to work. Yaakov has a very difficult life. And Yosef is separated from him for a very long time. In fact, for 22 years. But the Gemara is going to show us that Yosef is separated from Yaakov for 22 years, but Yaakov was separated from his parents for 36 years. So what happened? If being away from his parents means he lost some kind of divine protection, why didn't he lose 36 years? Why did he only lose 22 years? What's the answer going to be? Because 14 of those years, he didn't pay a price. Why? Because he was studying Torah. So we can see that the study of Torah is greater even than the mitzvah of honoring parents. Honoring parents would have brought him that blessing. Studying Torah brought him that blessing. Like the famous metaphor that the Rebbe gave with regard to the protection that a mezuzah affords. It was a terrible school story in, in Israel. A terrible, terrible terrorist attack. And those nice peace partners in, uh, in Ma'alot. And they murdered, they murdered in cold blood 18 children when the IDF tried to storm the school. And they later checked the mezuzahs, and they found there was 18. The Rebbe said they checked the mezuzahs. It was 18 non-kosher mezuzahs. He said there was a hue and a cry. And some people even foolishly said that Rebbe is suggesting that it's a punishment for a non-kosher mezuzah. The Rebbe said, chas Rebbe said, if a soldier goes out to battle, and he's missing a helmet, and that's where he gets hit, did the helmet, did the helmet kill him? Did the lack of a helmet kill him? No, the enemy bullets killed him but he could have had an extra measure of protection. So the mezuzah could be an extra measure of protection. Performing the mitzvah of kibbutz aim could ward off certain negative things, even in a terrestrial material way. And Yaakov Avinu was missing 36 years of that special aura, that protective kind of infusion. So why is he missing only 22, not 36? The answer is because when he was studying Torah, he wasn't missing anything. And that tells us, gives us a sense of how great Torah actually is. Could it not be that studying Torah is protection? It's not a matter of... Is that what makes it important? More important? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. You're asking why it is that we're so sure that Torah is greater than the lack of Kibbutz aim. So you'll see in the Gemara, the way the Gemara does this calculation... You know, it's, it's like, like tit for tat almost. The years match up. So it's 22 years plus 14 years. And Yaakov's suffering is 22 years. Now before we start the calculations, I just want to see if we have any questions here. Thirty-six minus fourteen is twenty-two. Oh, Skippy's YouTube is asking, how can we say he's going to be punished by heaven if, by honoring his father, he would make his father angry? He would make his father angry by ignoring his father. He would make his father angry. Okay, so we have the answer uh, that, that he didn't make his father angry per se. He, did, he didn't. He could have gone right back right after those fourteen years. 
Is this why Esav lived longer? That's a good, good point, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Honoring your parents doesn't go away, even if you're away from them. Well, listen, Patterns Toronto, that's a very good point you're making. But remember, you're asking a question in our modern day and age, where we have uh, YouTube and Zoom and FaceTime and all kinds of ways in which people can still stay in touch and be close, which, by the way, is not the same as, as physical presence, but, but it's a very different kind of world. Like once upon a time, we didn't even have a mail service. Yaakov wasn't able to do anything with his parents. He was just AWOL. He was just awake. But yeah, honoring parents is a very, very big deal. And being there for them physically is a very big deal. You know that the Rebbe was a very busy man, and I think that would be probably the understatement of the century. I don't think there was a more busy person on the planet. And the Rebbe would visit his mother, Rebbe Sechana, every single day. Yeah. There, is there a line that a parent could cross that would be, that would make it okay to just, not, not disrespect them, but just to remove oneself from them? It's a very, good question. It's very, the, the question you're asking really is, how do you define honor? How do we, so. how do yeah. we define honor? And so this is a whole section of the Shulchan Aruch. This is a whole. This that's not not a simple matter. It's not a simple matter. And, and there could be a situation where of mental illness or, or a form of dementia, which is violent, in which a person can't be involved. I mean, th- these are very serious questions, Shilas, that have to be asked. Now, I thought about that. I thought about that. But then if, if it's a mental illness that is causing the rift, right, that's not someone behaving, a parent behaving of their own voice. Right. You're, ask, you're asking something else. I'm just going to tell you that what you're asking is extremely complicated. But it's, so a, it's, a, it's a shayla. It's a okay. big shayla. You know, there's like anything, halacha, there, 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 there are issues. You know, I, I, I want to I I finish off with something interesting um, before we start the calculation. In, in Shulchan Aruch itself, this, this, this is quoted, this ruling of the Gemara is quoted in Shulchan Aruch. In, in, in Simon Reishmem, chapter 240 in Shulchan Aruch of the Yoridea section, in Seif Yud Gimel, in chapter 240, section 13, the Shulchan Aruch issues a pithy ruling. Quote, Talmud Torah gadol mikibud av va'im. Study of Torah is greater than respecting parents. That's the ruling. So the Pischei Tshuva says something very important in Simchat and Ches. He says, let me qualify that for you. A person has to go and study Torah. Where's the yeshiva that works for this person? It's in a different city. It's in a different country. Maybe it's across the ocean. So, so what should I do? Either I'm going to study Torah or I'm going to honor my parents. He says, I have to go study Torah. However, he says... If he's living here in the city, learn your Torah, go take care of your parents, and go back to learn your Torah. It doesn't mean that you can ignore your parents. It means if you have to make a choice between one or the other. So if the yeshiva where you find your yeshiva shame ve'ever is wherever it is, whether it's in New York, New Jersey, or Jerusalem, and you have to go somewhere away to, to be in yeshiva, so then that, that's... 
That's what you got. You got to do that. It's not possible for you to visit mom every day. By the way, it is possible to make phone calls and to use FaceTime and all kinds of other technology. But that's what you got to do. So it doesn't mean you're exonerated from the mitzvah. I'm studying Torah. I can't be bothered. I can't be. Sorry, mom. Don't expect any phone calls from me. I will not be coming to visit. I'll see you in a decade. A decade? Where are you going to be, son? Oh, I'm studying Torah. I have no time for you. That, that doesn't work. Isn't that a thing that, that children are encouraged to leave the city of their home to go and study? There is a concept of sometimes success, oftentimes in fact, success in Torah study comes when we divorce ourselves or exile ourselves from our comfort zone and go away where there's no distractions. Because you know what? Distractions are a, a dangerous thing. And people don't do so well with distractions. It's very hard to stay focused when there's a lot of distractions going on around you. So just like a person would say, you know, I'd like to study Torah in a place where people study Torah, but in the middle of a train station or in the middle of an airport, it's very hard to study Torah because a lot of distractions over there. That's true. That's true. You want to study the Torah really well? Yeah. Go to a mall. Sit down right in the middle of all the, 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 the bustle, hustle and bustle, and that's a perfect place to study Torah, said no one ever. <laughs> but... That doesn't mean if you're stuck in the mall, you shouldn't study Torah. That's fine. You're stuck in the mall. You got to do what you got to do. Go study Torah. <laughs> I was first married. We, were, uh, we lived out of town. We lived in, in Michigan. And uh, my wife wanted to go shopping. But I, I was just newly married. I don't want to go shopping. Like, uh, she wants to go shopping. So we had a deal. You, we go to the store you want to go to. I have my Gemara <laughs> or my Rambam. <laughs> so I was studying Torah in the mall. And I can tell you, it's not the easiest place to study Torah. <laughs> it's much easier to study Torah in the yeshiva, than the Bishmedish. All right? So I think we have a little bit of clarity as to, uh, as to this business. Um, so we have more questions. Do we not say our forefather Avraham did not visit his parents? Yeah, Zalman, we do say that. And in fact, that is why the Torah records the passing of Terach before it tells us the story of Lechacha. So people shouldn't say, hey, Avram left his father? Well, Hashem told him to leave. He needed to leave. But it, it, it doesn't look so good. It, it does indeed. And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean if your father is Terach and he's worshipping idols that you worship idols and say, Dad, you're fantastic. That doesn't mean that. Right? If, there's a famous question. People say, you have to honor me, said the parents, and therefore eat this non-kosher food and violate the Shabbat. They said, no, 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 that doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because both the father or mother and the son and daughter are obligated to honor Hashem. So honoring Hashem comes first. All right, so that's the ruling. That's the basic ruling. Let's figure this out. How do we know this? The Gemara opens with a question. And the question is made about a statement, a scriptural statement. Omar Mar, Mar says, page Yud Zion, Lomo nimnu shnosav shal yishmoel. Why does the Torah enumerate the days of Ishmael? The Torah is going to tell us in Genesis 25, Verse 17, These are the years of Yishmael. 100 years, 30 years, 7 years. Why are we talking about the years of Yishmael? 
Rashi says, um, maybe because he lived that long. What is the question? I'll tell you what the question is. Rashi says, Malonu limnus Why are we counting wicked people's years? There's a premise that holy people, righteous people, pious people, we count their years. Why? Because they used all of their time. It says about Avram Avinu, Avram Zokin, Bobayomim. Avram was old. Coming on in his days. So the Zohar says, Zokin and Bobayomim seem to be redundant. He's uh, getting old and now a senior. He just said he was getting old. So the Zohar says, Bobayomim means Bobayomim Shleimim. The Torah is telling us Avram didn't just live for a long time on the planet. He didn't exist on the planet. He came with all of his days. Avram had no wasted days. Imagine that. He had no wasted minutes. He arrived, he said, when he said he was 100 years old, he meant he served Hashem for 100 years. That's what he meant. Because otherwise they're empty years, existing years. You're, 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 you're alive because you're not dead. You're alive because you're here. Zalman is asking a question. He wants to know about the Yishmol doing tshuva. Very good. Hold your horses. A good question. So that's what Rashi says. That, Rashi says, that is the shot of the question. Why are we counting the years of the wicked? And the Gemara answers, I'll tell you why. Because we want you to know about Yaakov's years. The Torah has a message to tell you. And the Torah's messages are rarely on the surface. They require our mining of the verse. We have to dig and we have to look and we have to contemplate and we have to think to find the deeper messages. So the Torah is telling us Yishmael's years so that we know what Yaakov's timeline was. And the Gemara now is going to explain how that works. But before we do that, the Turei Oven asks a very powerful question. So what do you mean, why do we count Yishmael's years? He was a wicked man? He did tshuva. He became a tzaddik at the end of his life. He became righteous. How do we know he's righteous? Because at the funeral, he came not on the side of Yitzchak, but behind Yitzchak. The whole argument was, I'm number one, you're just a nuisance. You're the Johnny-come-late kid. And Sarah said, no, 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 no. That's not what Hashem told us. He is the one who is going to be the progenitor of the Jewish people. And in the end of Yishmael's life, he said, yes. Yitzchak, he is the patriarch. He is the holy man. He will teach me. He will guide me. And he respectfully followed Yitzchak. And we know from this that Yishmael did tshuva. And Avraham Avinu was promised seva tova. He was promised a ripe, old, sagacious, nachas-filled age. And he did. The end of his life was filled with nachas. He saw even Yishmael behaving as a child of Avraham Avinu should. So the Turi Oven says, didn't he do tshuva? And if he did tshuva, why are we uh, disparaging him? Whoa, why do we count Yishmael's years? Because he's about tshuva, that's why. And you say, well, it's about tshuva, but that's not so good. Maybe it's not so good. It's great. Do we not say in the Gemara, 
in Brachas on Daf Lamedalad, side two, do we not say in the Gemara Mesechet Sanhedrin on page 99 that Bemokim Shabale Chuva Oimdim ain't Sadikim Gemurim Yecholim Lamed that the place that the, is occupied by the penitents, those who return to Hashem, is even greater than the place that righteous, pure tzaddikim occupy? So it would seem. So therefore the Turi Oven has a different approach. He says, I don't think, I don't think what Rashi is saying, that's not the question of the Gemara. So I think the question of the Gemara is, why are we counting Gishmal's years? After all, once the patriarchs were passed, only patriarch years were, were counted. That's the rule. Patriarch years were counted. In the early times we counted years, in the early annals of human history, and then it's the patriarchs, and that's it. Patriarchs and matriarchs. Sorry, Emenu. Avram. Yitzchak. Yaakov. Fine. But the, we, don't, we don't count. The Torah doesn't enumerate. That's his way of learning it. But of course, it's very problematic because he kind of uh, ignores Rashi. So there is another very, very powerful way of understanding this. Rashi will take a look at the Masha. The Masha quotes Rashi and he says, so the Marsha comments, even though we say that Yishmael also tshuva, we say Yishmael did tshuva, it's in the first chapter of Mesechet Bava Basra, says the Marsha, nonetheless, Kevan because he behaved in a very wicked way. You know how wicked he was? He was so wicked, he tried to sexually abuse his little brother. And if that wasn't bad enough, he was so wicked, he tried to debauch his mores and spirituality by encouraging him to worship idols. And if that wasn't bad enough, he tried to kill his brother too. They set him like a game. He put apples on his head and he was shooting arrows, shooting uh, arrows at the apples, knocking the apples off. It was gonna, uh, um, uh, an accident waiting to happen. It's a very bad, bad child. It's a very bad man. He's like the monster of monsters. And then later, what was he? A mugger. A mugger. He had a band of thieves. And they were the uh, waylay travelers. Probably killed quite a few people too. He's not a good man. So, what are you going to count those years? You say, look, look at Yishmael's accomplishments. Murder, sexual abuse, idolatry, theft, grand larceny. This guy uh, would make the mafia blush. Okay, he became a tzaddik at the end of his life, but you don't want to count those years. Those are not years to be counted. You want to say Yishmael's a tzaddik at the end of his life? It's about true, we accept that. Now, here's, here's where it gets really interesting. We have a concept that if a person does tshuva me'ahava out of love for Hashem, zedonot na'aselo kezachiyot. His demerits become merits. How could a demerit become a merit? On a simple level, the pshat of the Gemara is this. A sin separates you from God. It's a barrier that separates you. But what happens if the sin becomes the catalyst for your spiritual growth? Precisely because you did this sin, that's why you became such a holy, pious person. Without that sin, you never would have become that. 
then we say, hmm, I guess that was a step in the right direction. As they say, don't try it at home. Don't say, let me do a little, few little sins over here. Then I'm going to do a gavaldic tshuva. No, it doesn't really work when you plan it that way. But if you don't plan it that way, amazing things can happen. But the Gemara says in Masechet Yoma, that's if you do tshuva ma'ava. It's a very high level of tshuva. Most, most of us only do tshuva, which is not me'ava, but me'ira. Out of awe, out of respect, out of, you know, I've got to do something with my life. God gave me a life. So in that case, the, z- sh- the zidonot become shigagot. The sins that you committed in a wanton way, they become toxic. The toxicity is lessened. It becomes like an inadvertent sin. It's still toxic, but not as toxic. It's not nearly as bad as willfully violating the will of Hashem. Can I give an example of, 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 of a sin? How a sin, yeah. How a sin. I mean, uh, the, the, every, every person is different, um, uh, Mark, but you know, you, you might know a certain individual who is at a very, very high level of closeness to Hashem, and they only reached this high level because they took a left turn. And that, and that idolatry they were involved with brought them into this holiness. There is, a, there, is a, there is a man who puts on tefillin with people at the Kotel. And this guy was like a swami. He, was, he wrote a book about it. It's not a secret. He was part of an idolatrous movement. He was a successful insurance salesman and he just left it all. He became a spiritualist. But what we Jews consider to be very negative spirituality. And eventually he, he comes home to Yiddishkeit. There's a crazy story how he feels an energy and he sees the Rebbe. It's a phenomenal book. His name is Gil Locks. This guy is like a, an amazing chassid today. He's not a regular person. He's way beyond a regular person now. Had he not had that experience, I don't believe he would be the kind of person he is today. Gil Locks. Did he do tshuva me'ava? I don't know. Maybe he did. He's, a, he's like a, this guy's a super, he's a super Jew. Supersonic Jew. <laughs> right? But he only came to that because of the, the negative experience. I'll give you a simple example. Here's an example that, that's maybe... Because the Torah uses the relationship between uh, husband and wife as a metaphor for our relationship between God, let's put it this way. Let's imagine that you had husband and wife, they had an okay marriage, whatever, and then they had a huge falling out, a terrible falling out. But they managed, not only did they not break the marriage, but instead they managed to put the marriage back together. Will the marriage be stronger or weaker because of it? Strong. Strong? You know, that cliche, anything that doesn't kill you will make you stronger? It's a cliche, but it's mostly true it's actually true so so there is these are examples and these again i get they're very very pedestrian ordinary examples of what we're talking about the reality is that there's a lot of people who did not live observant lives and precisely because they didn't live observant lives they have a way deeper appreciation of yiddishkeit than people who always had that life and don't even realize what they have so if you do tshuva on a very high level, it becomes like a mitzvah. Does that kind of work? Anyway, the whole thing is a tangent. But the point is this. So, so those mafarshim will tell you that Yishmael's years were not all holy years. Masha is telling you that they weren't all holy years. He never transformed his earlier years. He never actually turned his demerits into merits. He became a Baal but he, was, he, he turned his horrible, willful sins, wanton sins, into accidental sins. Still not good. 
but it was he he mitigated he blunted the impact of those of those negative activities there's no reason to count those years those years were in holy years and this of course fits very nicely very snugly with the words of rashi even as they're amplified by the the words of the marshal and it all kind of comes together very nicely all right so so let's uh Let's see how the years of Yishmael being enumerated serve to highlight and communicate Yaakov Avinu's timeline. Says the Gemara, the Chesiv for it's written, the Elishmois Chaye Yishmael. These are the years of the life of Yishmael. Meir Shon of Shleishim, Shon of Sheva Shonim, 137 years. Says the Gemara and asks a question. Tell me something. Kamakoshish. Yishmael me Yitzchak. How much older was Ishmael than Yitzchak? What's the answer? Answer is Arbesar Shnin, 14 years. Yishmael was born when Avram Avinu was 86 years old. Tchsivit says Avram ben Shmonim Shanavesheishanim. He was 86 beledet Hagar at Yishmael when Hagar gave birth to Yishmael. When did Avram Avinu get his Brit? Avram was a hundred years old when he gave a Brit Milah to Yitzchak. How old was Yitzchak at his Brit Milah? Eight days old. So if Avram was 86 when Yishmael was born, and he was a hundred when Yitzchak was born, how much older was Yishmael? The answer is 14 years older. When did Yishmael get his bris? When he was 13 years old. Exactly a year before Yitzchak was born. So now we know that Avram Avinu, because we know Avram's years, we know that Yishmael is 14 years older than Yitzchak. Okay, how does that help us? Well, it's going to help us a lot. Let's take a look in Rashi. I want to read, read the, the Rashi to you. The, the top Rashi, the sec, on the top line, the second Rashi on Daf Zayin. Rashi says, So that we can trace the years of Father Jacob. By knowing the years, because of this communication that the Torah tells us, the years of Yishmael, we are able to learn We can figure out how Yaakov was by all of the major life events of Yaakov. We all, then once we have that figured out, we are going to find that there are 14 years missing. Where was he for those 14 years? And the answer is, Shimesh Bebeit Ever Shana. And here Rashi makes the calculation for us. So I guess we'll go through it. Rashi, then we'll see it. Think about it. Ketzer. Avram, Ben Pevav Shana, Kishanelad Yishmol. Avram is 86 when Yishmol is born. Kishanelad Yitzchak, when Yitzchak is born, Hoya Ben Meir Shana, he's 100, because that's old he is at his bris eight days later. Yishmael's got 14 years on Yitzchak. How much older is Yitzchak than Yaakov? In different words. How old was Yitzchak when Yaakov was born? No. How old was Yitzchak when Yaakov was born? Yitzchak got married when he was 40, and his first children were born 20 years later. How old was he? 60. The Torah says that he was Shishim Shona, When he had the twins, he was 60. Now, if Yaakov Avinu was born when Yitzchak was 60, how old would Yishmael have been when Yaakov was born? 
Yaakov only had one, one uncle, right? 74. He would be 74. Very good. Yishmar Lai and Dalit. Kama, Paishon, Mishnoisov, Shel Yishmael. How much is left then from the years of Yishmael? Let's figure this math out. It's not that complicated. If when Yitzchak, if when Yaakov is born, Yishmael is 74 years old. And then we have Yishmael dying and he is 137 years old. So if we have a, a difference, a spread between 74 and 137, you don't need a degree in accounting. 63 years. Aha. How old was Yaakov Avinu when Yishmael died? This is not difficult. <laughs> if, 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 if Yitzchak was 60 when Yaakov was born, and Yishmael was 74, and he died at 137, how many years later is that? The answer is 63. So how old was Yaakov and Esav? And more importantly, how old was Yaakov when Yishmael died? The answer is 63. Okay, who cares? What does that do for us? Aha, what does it do for us? You wait and see. Let's go back to the Gemara. So the Gemara says, Yitzchak is 60 years old. How much is left from the years of Yishmael? How old is Yishmael when Yaakov was born? Shivim var by seventy four. How much is left of his years? Shitin vitla sixty three. Vitanya and we learned. How old was Yaakov Avinu at the time when his father gave him the blessing? How old was he? Sixty three. He was sixty three years old. How old was Yitzchak? If Yitzchak was 60 years old when the twins were born, how old was he 63 years later? He was 123. Why is Father Yitzchak giving blessings at 123? He ends up living till 180. The answer is because the Gemara tells us when a person comes within five years of their parents' demise, they should start to put their affairs in order. And what happens if your father lived a very long life and your mother lived a short life or vice versa? You don't know who you're going to follow. Sorry, Meno lives famously 127 years. Now Yaakov, now Yitzchak turns 123. He's within the five-year mark of 127. He says, maybe I'm going to die like my mother died. Sarah had a heart condition, a weak heart. Her heart gave out at 127. Yitzchak said, maybe I have a weak heart. In fact, he lived five years more than his father. His father lost five years, and that's another whole story. So therefore, Yitzchak is already giving the blessings. Well, if Yitzchak is 123 when he's giving the blessings, then we know how old was Yaakov at the time? 63. Now, what does this tell us? What does this tell us now? It tells us that the very same year that Yaakov got the blessings, guess who died? Yishmael. How do we know this? How do we know? For it is written, Esav saw that his father gave a blessing. How did Esav like that? 
He didn't. Not very much, no. So what did Esav try to do? If you were Esav, what would you do? You're trying to impress your parents. He says, oh, look at this. My brother got the blessing. You know what else he got? Instructions. They want him to get married. They wanted to marry a righteous woman. They wanted to marry somebody from the family. If you were Esav, what would you do? Marry someone from the family. But uh, Lavan and Esav are not going to get along. That's, that's like toxic, you know, nuclear. So he figures, I'm not going to go to Lavan. Where am I going to go? I'll go to good old Uncle Yishmael. And would you believe it? Yishmael had a beautiful daughter. And so, Vayelech Esav el Yishmael. Vayikach es machalas. He goes and he takes machalas. She's the daughter of Yishmael. But the Torah says that she is Achot Nevayot. She is the sister of Nevayot, who is the eldest son of Yishmael, because we have a whole list of Yishmael's sons, and Nevayot is the eldest son. Says the Gemara, If she's the daughter of Yishmael, Isn't that like kind of elementary? If she's the daughter of Yishmael and Nevoyos is the son of Yishmael, what would the relationship between Machalas and Nevoyos be? Right answers only. Brother and sister. I'm, I'm really glad the Torah tells us that she was the sister of oh, Nevoyos. Why did the Torah have to tell us that? Isn't that obvious? The Torah doesn't tell us obvious things. So the Torah is telling us something about the relationship. Melamed, the Torah is telling us, Kidesh Yishmael. Kidesh Yishmael. Yishmael was the one who arranged the betrothal. And then what happened? Unfortunately, the, father's, the father of the bride died. And when it came to the wedding, it was Nevoyas who went ahead and actually married her off. He, so to speak, proverbially walked her down the aisle. This has something to do with the fact that a Jewish wedding is comprised of two separate parts. In today's day and age, both of those sections happen under the same chuppah and the same time. That's why we read the ketubah in between to make a difference between what's called erosin, that translates freely as betrothal, and nisuin, that translates as matrimony. So basically, once upon a time, they weren't on the same night under the same chuppah. They could be a year apart. So he came to Yishmael and he said, Hey, Uncle Yishmael, I really like your daughter Machalas. What Esau really liked was the fact that she was his daughter. That's about it. And she was actually a righteous, like a pious girl. And Esau could have become pious. Because at this point, Machalas was born to a father who did tshuva, became a Baal tshuva. What did Esau do? He said, Machalas, come make me pious. Come marry me. We're going to have a wonderful Jewish life together. We're going to live just like your father Yishmael was living. And then as soon as she said yes and they got married, he says, now let me show you what life is about. And he took this very pious woman and he turned her into a totally impious, absolutely wicked, cruel, and immoral woman. So instead of allowing himself to become moral, he influenced her. He brought her down. Once met a guy, he says, you should see when I got married, my wife was such a tzaddikah, he said to me. I said, so what happened? He says, I turned her into a Rashanta. <laughs> he wasn't even joking. He says, I fried her out. She was doing everything when we got married. Yo, she was kosher. And I, I said, so she's doing all those things. Eh? He says, you're crazy. I don't want to live like that. He says, I taught her a better way of life. <laughs> anyway, he, doesn't, he didn't think he was a bad person. He thought he was a fantastic guy. He just didn't think those things were important. Anyway, so that's what, that's what Asaph did to this uh, poor lady. So what, what does this tell us all? 
what this tells us now we're going to get to the head of it. Now, now it's all going to come together. Because what happens now is, now that we know how old Yaakov and Esau were at the time of the blessings, at the time of the marriage, and we know this because we know when Yishmael died, that's how we know all this, because we know he died, and we know he died, therefore it must have been from being 74 at the time when they were born and dying at 137, 63 years. So now we know that they were 63 years old. So the Maharal asks a question, a famous question. By the way, this whole Gemara is cited at the end of Parsha Toldot by Rashi in the Chumash. Rashi goes through this whole Gemara. This is the last big Rashi. It's a big giant Rashi on Pasuk Zion. So the Maharal asks a question. Maybe there was a, a lot of time. Maybe they got engaged and waited uh, 10 years. How do you know they got married right away? Maybe between the two parts of marriage, there was a huge interregnum, a big interruption. And then later, Nasa. And then we have no idea how old Yaakov was when he got the blessing. And this whole precise calculation falls apart. Maharal says, that's not a question. Why? He went to Yishmael. What was his purpose of going to Yishmael? Because he saw that his father didn't like the wives he married before. Rois, Benois, Kanan, Beni, Aviv. Him came, Bavadi, Beyond the Saw. Esav was a man who got things done, you know. He didn't wait around. He's trying to impress his dad. So what was he going to do? Get married right away and bring her home. Look at that. Look, I got a wonderful, beautiful, fantastic, pious girl. Wait till you see what I do to her. You see that? Look, it's so great. There's Esav, the ultimate charlatan. He's a, a totally duplicitous individual. And he said, anyway, there's no reason to say he waited a long time because even in, in a most perfect, righteous situation, he said, wait a year. And they said, wouldn't wait a year. What would he wait for? No reason to wait. So where does this take us all? Let's take a look at Rashi quickly. When Yaakov got the blessing from his father, he was Ben Samach Gimel. Pardon me. Oh boy, but that's the same time Yishmael died. Yishmael, her father, took care of getting her, so to speak, engaged, what we would call engaged. This is betrothal, betrothed. Oh, Mason, he died. Who then brought her to the matrimony? Nevoyas, her brother. So now, let's go back to the Gemara. So the Gemara now continues the calculation. Now let's make another calculation. Tell me something. Yaakov is 63 when he leaves, he leaves his parents' house and gets the blessings. Okay. How many years does it take Ad the Messiah Yosef? How many years does it take until Yosef is born? How many years after Yaakov Avinu gets to Choron, is Yosef born? Anybody know? The answer is that Yaakov Avinu, who is 63 at the time of the blessings, the Arbesar and 14 Adamus Yalad Yosef, he worked for seven years for, for Leah. He worked for another seven years for Rachel, and at the end of those 14 years, finally Rachel had a baby. And we know that because Yaakov said to his wives, we're out of here now. Let's go. Now that Yosef is born, I can face Esav. That's 14 years later. Unfortunately, it didn't work that way. Lovin said, nah, don't leave so fast. 
let's have a negotiation. You've got to make some money yourself first. And he stays another six years. So what happens is we know 14 years. Okay, in that case, 63, yeah, 63 years old, four, add 14 years. How old should, Yaak, should uh, Father Jacob be then at the time when Yosef's born? 77. Okay. How old is Yosef when he becomes the king in Egypt? The answer is he's 30. Yosef ben Shleishim Shana ba'amdul of Nepari. When he stands before the Pharaoh as the king, he's 30. He's 30 years old. Now, Homeya Vishva. So that Yaakov would officially be 107 at this time. Because he was 77. Add 30 years to 77. 107 years old. Now, there was. There was Sav de Shiva. There was seven years of satiation. And then Tarte de Kafna. Then there was two years of starving, starvation, hunger years. That's nine years. So then if you add nine to 107, what do you get? Huh? 116. Meya Vishitsar, 116. When Yaakov stands in front of the Pharaoh, Viksiva, Yemir Pari Yankov Man, you look old. How old are you, Jacob? What does Jacob respond? By Yomer Yaakov Opara, Yaakov says, Yimei Shnei Megurai, the days of my sojourning, you should know what kind of life I live. Shleishum Meashana, I'm 130 years old. How did he become 130? According to our calculation, he should be 116. 14 years comes up again. There's 14 years missing. We got 14 years missing, a mystery. May have have He's supposed to be 116 according to the calculation. Because according to the calculation, he's 63 when he gets the blessing. He has a baby named Yosef 14 years later. He's 77. Yosef is 30 years old. Another nine years, he's 39. 39 years added to 77 gets you to 116. And here he's going and saying he's 130. Vey is mere. Get out the chametz kit and let's find the 14 years. <laughs> Fire up the candle, right? Get the spoon and the feather. We got to find, where did we lose these 14 years? Eh, says the Gemara, no. There's 14 years missing. 14 years don't fall off. You can't lose 14 years. Those 14 years, we now know the Hava Beseiver. He must have been. We know that he spent time in Yeshiva. And those years that he spent in Yeshiva, he didn't have to account for them, so to speak. And now the Gemara is going to make the calculation. The Tanya, because we learned, let's take a look in, uh, let's take a look in Rashi. Va'abar Sishana, have a Yaakov, the Beislavan, Adam, and Yosef. Yaakov was in Lovin's house for 14 years until Yosef was born. Dichsiv, we say, it says it openly. The scripture states it. Avadaticha, Arba, Aseshana. He said, I worked for 14 years, Bishnei Benesecha. Now give me my wages. Yosef, Sholmu, Yemei, Shnei, Avdos. That's when the servitude ended. Yaakov had agreed to a period of servitude, 14 years, seven for each daughter. It's done. And Yosef is born. Shanemar, Vayi, Kasha, Yolder, Rachelis, Yosef, and Rachel. Rachel finally gives birth to Yosef, to, 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 to her son Joseph. Misham, Vahala, Ovad, from that point onward, Yaakov was working for himself. He was now not working for Lavan as a servant anymore. It wasn't an indentured labor. 
Harei ben Ayin Zayin Hoya Yaakov Kishanelad Yosef. He should have been seventy-seven when Yosef was born. And then Yosef Shloishim Shonabam Dufnei Pare. He's thirty years old when he's standing in front of the Pharaoh. Nimsa Yaakov b'Meiva Sheva Yaakov should be one hundred seven years old. Because after all, Yosef is thirty years old. Benishloi Yaakov Leishav Beretz Kanan. Shalayarit Lumitzrayim Yaakov was in the land of Canaan, didn't come down to Mitzrayim for another nine years. <laughs> Where's the 14 years? Shiva, Sva, the Shavav, or Tartin, the Kafna, the Chsiv, Kizesh, Nosayim, or Rav, Bikaravaretz. Yosef says to his father, Come right now to Egypt. It's two years. Look at this. People are dying of starvation everywhere. You need to come now. You know what it's going to be like in seven years from now? Hayab bin Kufi officially he'd be 116. Kishyarit Lumitzrayim. Vikrok, see the verse says that he was Mehavish Shleishim. Shleishim Mayasran, 130. From when he left his parents' home until he came to Lovan's house, he spent 14 years somewhere. That doesn't get counted. So now the Gemara says, now finishing it up. We can see the 14 years are missing. So where does it go from here? So now we're going to see how Yaakov Avinu pays a price. The Gemara brings another b'raiser. The Tanya we learned in another b'raiser. Hoya Yaakov Yaakov remained devoted to studying Torah 14 years in the house of Ever. And then we say, Ever may Yaakov Avinu laram narayim. Ever dies only... After Yaakov goes down, they shot him two years later. So we see that Yaakov didn't just stay with Aver until, you know, uh, he died. He, he, he left Aver and he did what he had to do. But he needed to be there for 14 years. Yatsam Isham, he went out from there. Ubole l'aram naraim. Nimtza, kisha'omad al-be'er. When he was at the well, how old was he? Shivim v'shivashana. When he was at the well, he was 77. Not when Yosef was born. How old would he have been when Yosef was born? 14 years plus 77, which gives you a grand total of 91. He was an old man. So the Gemara says, hey, okay, fine, you convinced me. You found 14 years missing. You told me what the 14 years are. How do you know that Yaakov wasn't punished from those 14 years? The Tanya we learned. Nimtza. Yosef Yosef ends up being separate from his parents for how long? 22 years. He's separate from his father for 22 years. Just like Yaakov was separated from his father, Yosef was separated from his father. In other words, the Yaakov, but Yaakov was away from his parents for 36 years. That doesn't make any sense. Yosef was away from his father for 22 years because Yaakov was away from his father for 22 years, but Yaakov was away from his parents for 36 years. Hello. The conclusion is, our Besar, the 14 years, and Bes Ever, Lechoshevluhu, don't count. So the Gemara says, one second. Soif, Soif, fine, at the end of the day, the base love in Essen Shnin, he was only in love in his house for 20 years. So how do you get to 22? And the Gemara answers, Elamishum the Ishtahui Baurcha Tartan Shnin, because he tarried along the way for two full years. It don't take two years to get home. It was a long trip. The Tanya we learned, Yotzam Aram Naharaim, he went out from Aram Naram Naraim. Ubali Lusukas, he came to Sukas. Vasa Shamshmaina Sarchidesh, he did eighteen months there. 
He came to Sukkos. He built himself a house. And for his livestock, he made temporary homes. He spent he brought offerings, but he spent six months there. So for those, those two years, that adds up to the 22 years that Yosef is later separated from his father. So what's the proof here from the story of the Sukkot? So the Merume Sada says a Gavaldika thing. He says, why would you have to create a house for the goats? Goats and sheep need houses. Next thing you know, you're going to be buying them sweaters or something. What do they need a house for? He says, no, no, the animals don't need a house. The people need a house. But the kind of house you need during the summer is not the Heineck house you need. You have a bungalow in the summer and you have to have a proper house in the winter. And so it was actually about people. And it's a beautiful talk from the Rebbe. The Rebbe says that Yaakov Avinu is showing us how he gets us to live. When it comes to, for himself, loy, you have to have a boyus. From loy is for spiritual things. You have to have a, a, so to speak, a permanent house. When it comes to things which are the animals, the residuals, okay, for those things you could have a temporary house. As the famous story goes with the Maggid of Mizritch, a man came to visit him and he said, this is the great Rebbe of the Hasidim. He's got a, a table of rough wood. He sits on a tree stump. What's going on over here? He says, Rabbi, where's your furniture? And the Maggid said to this wealthy, but not such a uh, sharp fellow, he said, where's your furniture? He says, Rebbe, my furniture's at home. I got beautiful furniture. You should come see. But I'm traveling now. I don't travel with my furniture. The Maggid said, I'm also traveling now. I don't travel with my furniture either. My furniture is not the, the table I sit at or the chair I'm sitting on. And so this is the idea we learn from Sukkos, Bias and Sukkos. Yaakov lives different kinds of shelters or dwellings. And that becomes the closing lesson of Perek Megil Nekras. Hadran Allah Megil Nekras. With this we finish the first chapter of Mesechet Megillah. And the takeaway is that studying Torah is a very powerful and important thing. It's the same message that the Megillah itself ends with even though Mordechai is revered as one of the greatest heroes of all time, and he's like a Moshe Rabbeinu, as the Medrash says, and it's all true, but the Torah wants us to know, Hashem wants us to know, that the study of Torah is of tremendous importance, and we should utilize the time that Hashem gives us to study as much Torah as possible, and hopefully, as a result of our studying Torah, especially learning about Mashiach and Geula, we will be Zeicha, we will merit the coming of Mashiach in our time, Bimheira will be Amenu, Amen. Thank you so much for joining. Have a gorgeous night.